We're going to look at Psalm 33 together now and let it speak to us. So let's um, start by asking God uh, to help us as we do that. Father, please would you reveal more of yourself to every single one of us uh, this evening as we listen to your word. And please would you enable us by your spirit to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine that you're lying flat on your back and there is a man leaning over you holding a drill. And he is leaning more and more over you and the drill is getting closer and closer. And my question is, how do you feel? It kind of depends, doesn't it? If at this moment you've just had a sack taken off your head and discovered that you're in an abandoned warehouse and the man kind of looking over you has a sort of malicious grin and a, uh, an evil glint in his eye, then that is one thing. If, however, you're in this situation for the same, in the same way that I was on Monday morning and you've arrived at your dentist's and been greeted by a receptionist whose smile glinted not with malice but with excellently whitened teeth <laughs> and have then climbed up the stairs past several certificates of qualification to practice dentistry and then been called into the room by your dentist who's done a couple of successful fillings and then he's explained to you that you need root canal. Um, <laughs> it's quite a different thing. Either way... As Genevieve says, either way, it's not necessarily a very nice experience. Having to lie still while someone drills holes in you is not pleasant. He told me that it was going to take 15 minutes, but then once it's happening, you have literally no idea how long has passed or how far through the process they are, because it feels like they've been doing it for hours And they are talking, but they're only talking in the special dentist language that means you have literally no clue what they're on about. And so you have no idea how long you're going to have to keep waiting for. It's not an easy thing to wait like that. It's not pleasant. But it makes a huge difference whether or not you have a good reason to trust the person with the drill. It makes a huge difference whether you have a reason to trust the person in charge. And this psalm lands on that idea of waiting, where something is wrong, but God's people are waiting for him to come and put it right. I think it's, it's placed here straight after Psalm 32 for a reason. Verse 1 really echoes the end of Psalm 32. It's the same group of people. It's the righteous, the upright which we saw last week means everyone who comes to God honestly, asking him for forgiveness. And it has the same goal as well. It's inviting those people, inviting us to sing with joy to God. But the fact is that while last week we saw that when we come to God and ask for his forgiveness, he forgives us instantly, immediately. This psalm acknowledges the reality That when we come to God, yes, he will also rescue us from everything that is dangerous and dark in this world. He will put everything right. But that is not instant. That is not immediate. It makes me think of last November when I was at a gathering for um, people from across Europe who are involved in sharing the good news of Jesus with university students. Um, And at this gathering were my friends um, Maria 
and catch it. Uh, Maria is uh, the one in the color picture, the only grown-up in the color picture. Um, she is from Kiev, and this is her having moved back to her home in Kiev to work with her little, uh, her little church there to serve, mostly serving the internal refugees who fled there from further east, um, sh- caring for them and sharing the hope that they have in Jesus with them. And it's a very, very scary place to be. There are still uh, bombings. There's often no power and no heat. Um, and she, of course, is longing, longing for God to end the war. Um, Katya, on the other side, is my friend from Belarus. Uh, since the protests um, there in 2020, after an obviously rigged uh, presidential election, there's been a really fierce crackdown by the secret police on anybody who might be opposed to the president, including Bible-believing Christians. Many of them were involved in the protests. So in her church of 70 people, 25 of them have had to flee the country, either because they were uh, scared that they were going to be arrested or because they thought they were going to be drafted into the army, uh, including the pastor. And she herself has been arrested not too many years ago when the police raided a discussion event about God in a cafe that she was running. And so far, neither of their situations have changed. They have been praying and asking for an end to the war, for an end to persecution and oppression, but those prayers haven't yet been answered. And yet, at this gathering, they both got up and they shared what was going on in their countries. And even as you could hear the fear and the tears in their voice, they praised God for who they knew he was and is And for all the powerful things that they had seen him doing, even in the midst of all that stuff. And that weekend, I got to sing with them praises to God. And they were singing with real joy, even through their fear and their pain. So the question is, what is it that they have grasped about God that enables them to actually find joy in him, even while they're waiting in the dark? And that is what this psalm shows us. And we all need to grasp these things again and again and again. Because while I hope that not many of us are in situations that are as dark as theirs are right now, many of us are waiting in the dark in one way or another. Is there a situation in your life that you are longing for it to change? Maybe it's a struggle with your mental health or physical health. It might be for you or actually it might be someone that you care about and love. Maybe you're single and you really, really don't want to be. Or maybe you're, you're married and you're hoping and trying for, for children, but it's, it's just not happening. Or maybe for some of us here, it's that we're living under a, a cloud of grief that never feels like it's going to go away, and maybe we don't even feel like we want it to. For those of us who aren't in that place right now, that's wonderful, But we need to know these things too. We need to get a hold on these things too because then we will have them gripped tightly for when these days do come for us. And in the meantime, those same things that give us light in the darkest times are also things that give us more and more reason to sing with joy to God, to give him the praise that he deserves. So whether we're happy or we're really, really hurting, we all need to know how can we find a bright flame of joy and hope in God that cannot be extinguished however long we have to wait in the dark. 
And in essence, the answer of Psalm 33 is this. We need to know that we can trust the person in charge. So how do we work out in life whether we can trust someone? Well, the first thing we do is we listen to their voice. We listen to what they have said And we look to see whether what they've said has proved to be trustworthy. And this is what the psalm invites us to do in verses 4 to 12. Look at verse 4 again. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The first reason the psalm gives us that we can sing with joy to God is that he keeps his word always. What God says he will do, no question. How do we know that? Well, firstly, the psalm says, God spoke creation itself into being. Look down at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. That's a reference to the way that the Bible begins with saying that God spoke everything into existence. God says, let there be light. And there is light. God says, let there be stars in the sky, and there are stars in the sky. I'm obviously abbreviating, and so I think is Genesis, but the point is very, very clear. When God expresses his intention, when he speaks, what he intends happens. It's one of the most painful realizations of every childhood that our words aren't like that. The moment where you realize that however many times you say, let there be ice cream, it doesn't mean that there's necessarily going to be ice cream. But even as adults, with things that are within our power, often the things that we say we will do, we then don't do because for whatever reason, we're fickle or we're unreliable. But God is not like us. The word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. When God speaks, it happens. And if that feels like a sort of abstract, distant, theological claim to us that we can't really know if it's true, then we've got to think about Jesus. Because in Jesus, God walked onto the pages of human history. And we have the accounts, the eyewitness of accounts of people who were in the boat with him when a a deadly, sudden storm came on the Sea of Galilee and they woke him up sleeping in the boat and he gets up in the midst of this crazy storm and he says, quiet, be still. And the storm is quiet and the waves are still. Jesus' words are God's words and they work like this. What he says happens. Isn't that a God worth singing about? Isn't that a God worth enjoying and praising? And the thing is, if we grasp this, then it means that if we need help at any particular moment, trusting God, trusting that God does what he says, we can literally look at anything We can look at anything. We can pick up a rock or or touch a tree. Or if if our subject is science, we can look at what we're studying in in the material world. Or if we're a musician or a mathematician, we can look at music or mathematics itself. Or we can just hold our pet hamster and we can realize this thing only exists because God said it would. God spoke this thing into existence. God said, let there be a hamster, and there was a hamster. God said it, and he did it. And the wonderful thing about that is that God's word is just as reliable for us now in history as it was in creation. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, for he spoke 
and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And then look at how that's echoed in verse 11. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations, all the way through the generations, including us. His words to us, his purposes for us are just as firm, just as unshakable as the words that spoke the stars, that spoke mathematics and music, that spoke hamsters into place. His words for us are just as powerful. And that means that there is nothing that can stop him from keeping his word. That's what's going on in verses 10 to 12. Let me just read that again. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. The point is this, superpowers might have all sorts of plans to destroy you. And that was literally true for Israel at various points in their history. But it's only God's plans that stand firm forever. And he doesn't change his mind. So if you belong to him, then their bad plans for you can never ruin his good plans for you. God cannot be overpowered or overruled. What God says, he will do. That is a God worth singing about. So when we're struggling or discouraged, let me encourage us to do what Christians have done before us through the centuries and look into God's words, searching for his promises, looking for the things that he promises to every one of us as Christians Because when we find what God says to us in his word, we can take hold of that and meditate on it because we can be utterly confident that he will keep those promises. What he says, he will do. So the psalm mostly is encouraging people who belong to God with that fact, saying, guys, remember how wonderful and immense your God is. But it's almost like it can't help itself mentioning, while it's on the subject, the obvious implication of that for the rest of the world. Look at verse 8. He says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. God spoke every inch of this universe, every person on this planet into being. It's his breath of life that is in every one of our lungs. And there is nothing and no one in the universe that can stop him keeping his word. So it It's just obvious, it's natural, it's necessary that all the earth should fear him. And that is just as true today as when it was first written. It applies to every single person in this room, every single person in this city, every single person on the planet. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Now, what does it mean that everyone should fear God? Well, this is a huge theme in the Bible. I'd love to talk about it more Um, But I found something recently that has really helped me to think about it. Imagine that you're in a room with a lion. And in that moment, right, every cell in your body is focused on the lion. Every single thought, every move that you make is made in the awareness of the power and the presence of that lion. That is what real fear does. It focuses and fixates everything in us on the object of our fear. It demands that we be totally oriented around the thing that we fear. 
But here's the brilliant thing. We've just heard that God is faithful in all he does. He's utterly trustworthy. So it's not like being in a room with a lion, terrified because we think, man, this thing could eat me at any minute for no reason. Not at all. God will keep his word. And whether that is good news for us or bad news for us is entirely dependent on how we respond to him. If we realize who he is and we move towards him and we take refuge in him, he will never, ever turn on us. He will never betray us. He will never let us down. And so that fear of him becomes a glorious fear of trembling, humbling joy. So we only need to be frightened of God in a bad sense if we refuse to come to him and fear him in the right sense. God is the lion who is here with us in the room of this universe, whose roar brought it all into being. The earth is full of his unfailing love. There is nowhere apart from him. And so we need to orient our whole lives entirely around who he is and what he has said. Because he absolutely can be trusted, but he absolutely cannot be ignored. So let me just say, if you're here tonight and you're still holding God somewhat at arm's length, you're not wanting to let him kind of be in the center of your life, you're wanting to sort of tame him so that you can stay in charge, he is speaking to you through verse 8 this evening, saying, please don't do that anymore. Do not let any of the doubts in your mind, any of the consequences that you're worried about or the, um, the, the things that you're reluctant to give up, don't let any of those things stop you from realizing who he is. Do not try to run away from God. Run towards him. Do not try to ignore God. Revere him. Do not try to tame God. Trust him. You can trust him, and you need to trust him. And here's the other way that we work out whether or not we can trust someone. We listen to their voice, but we also look into their eyes. And that is what the psalm invites us to do in verses 13 to 19. It's saying to us, look into God's eyes. See the way he looks at you. See the way he really feels about you. So verses 13 to 15 basically say, yes, God is in heaven. He's in his own dimension, so he's invisible to you. You can't see him, but he can see you. He's not distant. He's not disinterested. He is actively watching you. He's got his eye on you. He's paying close attention, and he sees you completely inside and out. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. And then in verses 16 to 19, the psalm basically compares all the things that we can see, that we tend to put our trust in, with the God who we can't see, but who sees us. So it says, verse verse 16, no king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. So we get here a little kind of poetic catalogue of some of the kinds of things that we're tempted to trust 
and to find security and confidence in. So firstly, no king is saved by the size of his army. In military terms here, we've got the temptation to put our trust in our position or our resources. Maybe for some of us, it's that we or our family are quite wealthy. And so we feel like we've got plenty of resources to fall back on. And that's what gives us a sense of security, a sense that it's all going to be fine. Or maybe uh, for others of us, it's our position. It's, it's our, our job or the, the university that we're at. That makes us feel secure. Or what about the next verse? No warrior escapes by his great strength. You can imagine the warrior kind of seeing the enemy rushing towards him and thinking, I can do this. I back myself. Do we rest our hope in the fact that we can look in the mirror and say, I'm strong, I'm capable, I can do this, I'm going to be okay, I believe in myself. What about the third? A horse is a vain hope for deliverance, despite all its great strength it cannot save. A horse was a very powerful bit of military technology. And actually, I wonder if some of us are tempted to put our trust in the power at our disposal in terms of our technology, to trust that somehow whatever happens, science will save us. We saw that so much in COVID. Which of those three is the biggest temptation for you personally? Trusting in your own position or resources? Trusting your own inner strength? Or trusting in power and technology? Or is it something else for you? If you were to say to yourself, whatever happens, I'll be okay as long as, how would you finish that sentence if you were honest with yourself? Would it be, I'll be okay as long as I've got her, as long as I've got him? Or as long as I've got my family, or as long as I've got my work, or as long as I've got my health, or as long as I've got my wits, what would it be? That's what you're putting your hope in. That's what you're trusting in. And can I encourage you, either tonight or maybe tomorrow morning, to to actually spend a bit of time with God thinking about what the biggest things are for you that you tend to put your trust in and your hope in instead of him. I personally am really tempted uh, to the second thing, to putting my, own, uh, my hope in my own kind of ability and my own strength, to think not on, honestly deep down, to not think whatever comes, God has got me, but to think whatever comes, it's going to be all right. I'll, work, I'll be able to work hard enough. I'll be able to think fast enough. I can, I can manage it. I can handle it. But here's the point that the psalm is making. None of those things can actually save us. The test that the psalm offers us at the end of verse 19 is very simple. Can they keep you alive? A while ago, I read this incredible poignant book by Paul Kalanithi called uh, When Breath Becomes Air. He was a brain surgeon and then he was diagnosed young with um, brain cancer himself. And this moment from it really struck me. He said, medical training is relentlessly future-oriented, all about delayed gratification. You're always thinking about what you'll be doing five years down the line. But now, I don't know what I'll be doing five years down the line. I may be dead. I may not be. I may be healthy. I may be writing. I don't know. I found that so striking because I think whether we're students thinking about our career or people working, thinking about our retirement, we so often put our hope and our confidence in what it's going to be like 
five years down the line, ten years down the line, whatever it might be. And we so rarely honestly believe that we're ever actually going to die. Or even more so, that we might actually die before any of that happens. And of course, we could. And no intellectual brilliance or strong marriage or great family or wealth or career, none of that can protect us from that. None of that can make us immortal. Verse 19, with its talk about death and famine, it makes us ask, what use is a hope and a security that could be shattered any second by death and that one day certainly will be? But verse 18 says good news. There is somewhere we can put our trust and our hope that really can face up even to death. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death. If you put your hope in him, if you trust in him, you can know that he's got his eye on you. And that isn't just the vague old sort of platitude, oh, there's someone up there watching over us. No, it is personal and it's attentive and active. It's committed, it's caring. I remember when I was in like year six or something like that, there was this very exciting moment where me and my friends were allowed to go into town on our own for the first time, I think to like go to the cinema or something. And it felt very exciting, very grown up. But a few years later, my parents told me that the way they'd done it is actually the parents had all agreed with each other that they would all let us go on the condition that one of the parents, when they dropped us off, one of the parents stayed behind and secretly didn't leave and just followed us around, keeping an eye on us so that if we got lost or if something happened to us, they could step in and we'd be all right. And I just want to say, if you trust in God, your whole life is like that. Whatever happens, whatever you are going through, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it, you cannot see him at all, he can see you. He's got his eye on you. He's looking after you. And even if and when death itself comes, he will deliver you through death into everlasting life. You are safe. You are deeply, deeply secure. Let me challenge you to take whatever it is that you're most tempted to put your trust in and your hope and security in, your I'll be okay as long as thing, to just take that and hold it up next to God. How wide and deep and long-lasting is the security that that thing can offer you? And then just ask, how wide and how deep and how long-lasting is the security that you find in a God that loves you like that? God is the person in charge of this world, of your life, and you can trust him. Even when it feels like it did for me at the dentist on Monday morning, like you've been waiting forever. Even when it feels like God is doing some kind of nasty thing and you don't understand it, you can trust him. You can trust that he has his eye on you. He's paying attention and he is working to do you good, not to harm you. Listen to his faithful, unstoppable voice. Look into his eyes and see him looking at you with attentive, unfailing love. And that brings us to the 
beautiful landing place of this psalm, verses 20 to 22. This is the stance, the posture towards God that this psalm is inviting us to share. This is the prayer that we're being invited to join our hearts and our voices with. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So this is what the psalm is inviting us into. We wait in hope for God. Waiting for God to act, to to help us. But most of all, we wait for God himself. We wait for Jesus to return so that we see him face to face and he can wipe the tear from every eye and we can enjoy him forever. And while we wait, we trust him. And that means that our hearts can actually rejoice in him. We trust in his unfailing love so we can sing for joy. I I just want to ask, do do we know what it is for our hearts to rejoice in him? I imagine that many of us do. We know what it's like to be singing together with our brothers and sisters in church or to be uh, spending time reading the Bible and praying ourselves or maybe to be talking to someone else about our faith and to find that our hearts are rejoicing in him, that there is actual deep joy because of who he is and who he is for us. And and if you know that, I'm sure that you want more of that. And if, as I'm talking, you're thinking, that actually doesn't sound like something I really have ever experienced, then do you want that? And the psalm says, as we trust in him, as we learn to trust him, our hearts rejoice in his holy name. But as we draw to a close, I just want to ask, how do we know that these aren't just empty words? You know, when we're waiting and waiting, longing for relief from some situation that's tormenting us or for healing or for a child or whatever it is that we are longing and aching for and it just doesn't make sense to us why God would not do something now, why we would have to wait, how do we know we can actually trust him? Well, look at verse 20. We wait in hope for our God to act in the future, but he is already our help and our shield. And it's the same in verse 22. We put our hope in you for the future, but we do it knowing your unfailing love is already with us now in the present. And as Christians, we can take those words onto our lips with a very, very deep certainty because we know that God is right now in the present our help and our shield in Jesus. What does a shield do? It stands between you and the danger so that nothing can get to you without coming through it. And ultimately, of course, a shield is there to save you by taking the deadly blow in your place. It saves you from death by taking the death blow instead of you. And that is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. He has stepped in front of us to be our shield. He's died our death. He's faced the the agonizing reality of God-forsaken death in our place on the cross so that we are safe. The eternal death blow 
of justice for our sin, judgment and condemnation and destruction. It cannot touch us now because he is our shield. He took the blow for us and we are safe forever. And for me, that has always been the thing that I cling on to when I'm faced with questions that I do not have an answer to. When I find myself crying out, why are you allowing this, God, and and being met with a deafening silence, I cling on to this, and I invite you tonight to cling on to it with me. God loves us with an unfailing love that is so deep and so real that he has come in Jesus to be our shield and to die for us. So even if we don't know why he is letting something happen, we know that it cannot be because he doesn't love us. If he didn't love us, he would not have done that. It cannot be because he doesn't love us. It must be because he does. It must be because he does. So let me invite every one of us tonight to just trust him again. We don't know everything, but we do know enough to trust him. And that means that we can wait for him, even when it feels like we're waiting forever. And like Maria and Katya and countless brothers and sisters around the world and through the centuries, we can sing with joy to God, even if sometimes it's through tears, even with a lump in our throat, even when we feel too weak to stand and sing. We can let our pain and our frustration actually be like a kind of hammer that just drives us deeper and deeper into the foundation that God is good. He is our shield. He can be trusted. And so we can rejoice and we can sing and praise him because he will keep his word. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And like Jesus' wounds didn't just disappear, they became part of his glory, so too our scars will become part of our glory. A glory so precious and bright and weighty that we can barely imagine it now. That is what God has said his unfailing love for us will do one day. And what God says he will do. So can I invite the the band to come up? Uh, We're going to put this psalm into practice um, by singing. And before we do, I just want to invite us to pray these last three verses together. Obviously, there's no pressure at all. I know that there are some of us here who haven't yet trusted uh, Jesus, and so you can't honestly make these words your own yet. If if that's you, please don't feel any pressure to um, pray something that you don't mean, but just take it as an opportunity to ask yourself, do I want to pray this? Could I pray this? But let's all stand together now. And let me just invite anybody who wants to, to speak out with me this prayer from verse 20 to 22, and then we'll sing together. We say together, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord even as we put our hope in you. Amen.